You're listening to the North Canton Chapel Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. It was December 17th, 1903, and they had finally done it. See, these two brothers from Dayton, Ohio, had spent four long years researching, planning, experimenting, and trying everything they could so they could fulfill their dream. How could they get something so heavy off the ground, propelled by itself for that long? So many people said it would be impossible. Well, they finally did it. These brothers, Orville and Wilbur Wright, were finally successful of getting this flying machine off the ground and into the air on that windy day in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. You see, their first attempt lasted for about 12 seconds, but by the fourth attempt, their flight had, had gone 852 feet in 57 seconds. This was a monumental accomplishment. And this was the first time an aircraft of any kind powered on its own had left the ground in sustained flight. These men were so thrilled with what they had just accomplished. And they rushed to send a message, to send a telegram to their family. And it said this, success, four flights, Thursday morning, all against 21 mile per hour winds, started from level with engine power alone, speed through the air, 31 miles per hour, longest 57 seconds, inform press, home Christmas. You see, this was great news. Once their family received this telegram, uh, their father told uh, their, their sister Catherine to take this to um, the local newspaper to, to, to get this published. And uh, this was such great news that Catherine went there to uh, take it to the newspaper. And, uh, you know, man's first flight, this was so important. This should have made headlines everywhere. The local news reporter and the editor looked at the telegram from Catherine. He looked it over and he discounted it altogether as newsworthy. He said, oh, that's nice. The boys will be home for Christmas. You see, the editor missed it. The local paper could have scooped one of the biggest stories, one of the greatest achievements in all of history, but they missed it. You see, the same thing can be said for many people over the last 2,000 years in regards to the true meaning of hope at Christmas time. You see, I think we all at some level are, are, are searching for hope and what the true meaning of Christmas is. And the greatest news in all the world was right in front of us, and many missed it. I wonder if the same can be said about you today. You see, there's so many things going on in our world, and, and Christmas is, is wrapped up in lights and trees and gifts, and gatherings, and, and so many other things. But right now, in this year especially, we've got so many things that are distracting us, and so many things we can focus on or pay attention to, right? Uh, we still have the election results still looming. Uh, is that still a thing? Uh, we have things going on locally in our community that we're involved in. Uh, we've got things going on in our, our kids' schools. We've got the latest update from the governor. We've got all the, the latest COVID numbers and what those mean. 
we're, we're interested in the social media post and, 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 and the latest, uh, the latest news and the latest rant on social media. And there's just so many things to pay attention to that we're distracted and, and we're just tired. And I understand if we could miss it, but this year we have an opportunity not to miss it. You see, in a year where everything is big news, it's really hard to sift through what is real and what is important. So in that, we can be tempted to, to, to really just be tired and apathetic and disconnected and just numb to it all. But in that, we can actually uh, step back and see what God is doing in the midst of all that's going on. But what is it that we can actually have hope in in 2020? Right? In a year uh, that we've had so much go on, where it seems that all hope is lost, the only, the, the only hope that we seem to cling to is, is hoping, to answer, uh, hoping for answers to all of this information, hoping that all this would go away. And, and, and if you're like many, hoping that the circumstances would just change and, uh, and, and just be different. But what we find in doing that is, is it really just perpetuates a deeper feeling of hope, hopelessness within us when we do that. You see, because the world always promises hope and it never seems to deliver. Because hope is not found in things or money or gifts or choosing to be optimistic in, in weird or hard circumstances. But hope is a person. Hope has a name. Hope has come. And you can know of this hope today. So today, don't miss it. The greatest news of all was introduced on the smallest stage. And God delivers this message of hope for all mankind, just as he promised. And he does it in a way that is least expected. So here's where we've been. The last five weeks, we've been in this series called Preparing the Way, which laid a really good foundation for this Advent season leading up to the, the few weeks here before Christmas. And Advent is really just a word that we use in the church that means the coming of or the arrival of the birth of King Jesus. So for the next few weeks, we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, which is probably one of the most well-known passages in all of Scripture, centered around right, the Christmas story. So in this series, we're going to call it Hope is Born. And today, we're going to focus on the first seven verses there in Luke chapter 2. And it's a simple text that many of us know. But today, I want us to see that we can find hope in God's power, in His providence, and in His presence in this passage today. This passage really just unfolds in, in three chunks, and it's got a very contrasting progression. So it starts with this, this wide decree, and then it gets a little bit closer with this journey of, of this couple. And then by verse 7, uh, we've got this intimate and tender scene where, where we've got a mother and a child. See, God wants us to see this morning that just as much he's, as he's in control of the big things in life, He's also in control of the simple things in life. And in that, we can find hope. So this key phrase that God has been stirring within me this week and reminding me of, and, and we're going to see it a few times today in our, in, in, our, in our message today, that hope is found when I trust that God is always at work. Hope is found when I trust that God is always at work. Before we get into the text in Luke chapter 2, I want to give you a little bit of context. So throughout scripture, throughout time, throughout history, there are hundreds uh, and thousands of prophecies, which are really just promises throughout the Bible, pointing to the coming of Jesus. 
And we see the first one in the very beginning of Scripture. Right after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they broke this relationship between a holy and righteous God. Uh, This first promise was given by God uh, of one who would come and provide hope. Hope for rescue uh, for the brokenness of, of mankind. We see this in Genesis chapter 3, verses 15, where the seed of woman would be victorious over the serpent. And really, the rest of the Bible is only, is really one big giant story tracing this story of redemption to see how God would, would bring all that about. So all throughout the scriptures, all throughout the Old Testament, God spoke through people. He spoke through prophets about this coming king. And thousands of years before his arrival, uh, he spoke about these things. We, we see in the Old Testament, many prophecies point to the coming uh, of the birth of King Jesus. But then there was this 400 years of silence between the Old Testament time and the New Testament time. Can you imagine that? 400 years where, where God didn't raise up a prophet, where they didn't hear from God, where he didn't reveal anything new. That was four centuries. Talk about feeling hopeless or alone. I bet they felt that way. You see, Luke, in, in his gospel account, uh, he, he also wrote the book of Acts. And uh, what we know about Luke is he writes with a lot of certainty. Luke is a physician, and he's also a, a pretty good historian. And uh, he pays attention to specific details, which is why I'm, I'm interested that we're digging into uh, Luke's account here of this gospel in Luke chapter 2. We'll see that here in our text today. Leading up to Luke chapter 2, what we see in Luke chapter 1 is the angel of the Lord, Gabriel, shows up and and appears to this couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and tells them that they're going to have a son and his name will be John. You see, later we read that that John is the cousin of Jesus. And uh, we also know that the angel of the Lord, Gabriel, shows up to to Mary, who is in Nazareth at the time, who is engaged to be married to Joseph. And uh, that he, this good news that he brings to her is, is that you are, are with child and, and you're going to bring forth a child and you shall call his name Jesus. So Mary says, how, how can I have a baby? How can these things be, right? I've never known a man. I'm still a virgin. And Gabriel says to her, you'll be conceived by the Holy Spirit and, and the baby that is born from you is the promised Messiah. Mary was ecstatic. She was humbled. She was excited. She rejoiced and she worshiped God because of this. So today we'll pick up in the beginning of chapter two. And I want us to see three things that we find hope in, right? We find hope when we we remember that God is always at work. But the first thing that we find hope in is God's power. Look in verses one through three in Luke chapter two. It says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And if you're like me, this is, again, such a common story of Christmas. And every Christmas, we we sit down in front of the tree on Christmas morning and read this account, Luke's account of the birth of Jesus. You know, I love how Luke is interested in anchoring our understanding of the birth of Jesus as Messiah in the context of concrete facts, that these are facts in history, that this is not once upon a time. It's not a once upon a time story. What he's identifying here are real people in history, real places, and a real event, a real census that took place. So first off, we have this decree from a guy named Caesar Augustus. Who is he? 
while he was actually born with the name Gaius Octavian. Uh, he was the great uh, he was the grandnephew, I'm sorry, of Julius Caesar. And uh, if you remember through high school, reading up uh, on your history or also brushing up on your Shakespeare, you know a little bit about Julius Caesar uh, and his leadership over uh, the Roman Empire. Um, so Caesar Augustus was the heir to G- Julius Caesar. He was the one who rose to power over Mark Antony and Cleopatra. He was instrumental in really shifting Rome. Uh, from a, a republic to an empire. And he was recognized by this Roman Senate in BC 27, where he was given this new name. So, so Gaius Octavian or Octavian Gaius um, is given a new name, Caesar Augustus. And there was purpose to this name. Um, the name Augustus was given because it had a divine title, which, which actually means exalted one or sacred. So Caesar Augustus was looked at uh, as the savior of Rome. He was essentially th- their king or their God, mainly because he brought about peace to the Roman Empire. But it wasn't peace like you and I would think of peace. It was peace that was driven by fear or by control, which is really not peace at all. See, people knew they couldn't speak up against Rome because if they spoke up against Rome or spoke up against the emperor, their life was on the line. So Caesar Augustus ruled tightly over the Roman Empire. So when Luke talks about this decree that all the world would, would be registered, he's referring to the whole Roman world, which was massive, and at this point had, had pretty much taken over the whole known world. And this registration was really a tax where Caesar Augustus would benefit from and, and, and have control over the people of Rome. It also says when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So the, this gives us a time frame. It names people and it names a time. Um, I want us to know that Quirinius is also a real person. Um, historians believe that this time frame was possibly after King Herod's death would have been uh, right around 2 BC or 1 BC when this decree or this census went out. But it's interesting to look at God's timing here, right? Up to this point throughout scripture, right? You've got Israel uh, suffering uh, pain and division, and you've got the Northern and Southern kingdoms divided. They're in exile. And at this point, they're really uh, not a people at all. God's people felt like a pawn in the oppression of the hands of a Roman empire. And if there was ever a time for God's people to feel hopeless, this was it. But the timing of this is really incredible here. You see, after 400 years of silence, God shows up in a big way with power. Power over Roman government, over man-made structures, And God uses one of the most powerful political leaders in that day over over the Roman Empire to announce the biggest news. You see, this great news, this announcement that hope would be ushered in was on the back of a Roman tax. What God was saying here is, "You, you, you really think that Caesar is in control? No, I'm telling you that I'm in control. And the greatest thing is Caesar Augustus and Quirinius were oblivious to all of this. Unknowingly, They actually pave the way for the fulfillment of prophecy. So we see that God is all powerful over creation. He rules over all, that his timing is always perfect and he knows what he's doing. So the truth is that we can remember that and find hope in that. And remember that hope is found when I trust that God is always at work. So we see God's power uh, with this wide decree in this census, right? And that sounds really good. And then we see the shift here in verses four and five. 
this young couple, they're on a journey to a specific place. So let's pick up in verses four and five. We find hope here in God's providence. Verse four, it says, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was in the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So we find hope in God's providence. And right, God's providence simply means that all that occurs in the universe takes place under God's sovereign guidance and control. We talked about that a lot last week, right? God's, God's character is that he's sovereign, he's strong, he's personal. We learned a lot about the character of God last week. But he's also a loving father and he's working all things for his good and his glory. So you read this part and you say, okay, God, I see what you did there. Uh, the best way to get these people to their hometown is to send out a registration, a census, a Roman decree, and by your providence, provide the right circumstance to fulfill all of scripture and fulfill what happened and what was said in Micah 5.2. He says this, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrata, who are too little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me, who is one to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. So see, 700 years prior to this, Micah prophesied that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. We see God's providence orchestrating these events with the right people, the right place, and the right time. But then we also see a level of man's responsibility here. So don't overlook this simple step of obedience on Joseph and Mary's part. You see, the step of Joseph to register for taxes, to make this journey, um, it is not a, a uh, you know, it's, it, it, it was a pretty hard thing to do, okay? The simple obedience um, to follow an edict or an order from a governor, it, it sounds pretty simple, but it was a big step of faith. There were others in that day that called themselves followers of God that rose up to revolt against the census, um, and they didn't follow the ways of God. And what we found out about them, you can read in Acts chapter 5, verse 34, a guy named Judas, uh, Judas the Galilean, uh, that things did not go very well for him. So this step of obedience of Joseph following God's order, following the government's order of, of being registered. So young Mary and her fiance Joseph make this trek. And Joseph went up from Galilee to the town, from Nazareth to Judea, because he was a descendant of King David from Bethlehem. But the conditions of this journey are, are really less than ideal. Bethlehem is, is in the mountains, and this journey would take uh, you know, on foot a, a long time, many days. And it was about 80 miles from there, uh, from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Through that, I mean, just anyone not being pregnant, traveling 80 miles by foot, it, it would be gruesome uh, and it would be brutal. But alone with a pregnant woman, uh, she didn't necessarily have to go to Bethlehem for this census. But, uh, but the fact that she did, it may tell us a few things about that. Uh, it may tell us that she was probably pretty far along uh, in, in this process and closer to, 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 to delivery than we actually thought. Or she may have felt anxious about being there in Nazareth, uh, avoiding the emotional stress or the public scrutiny or the pressure that they would have felt of, of being pregnant. And, uh, and being engaged at this time. But realize Mary faced giving birth away from her mom, away from her hometown, away from her community because she was going with Joseph and they were being obedient. Maybe you've been there. You felt lonely. 
you felt hopeless. And maybe even today, you're just wondering in your own journey of life, God, why do you have me here? Why are things working out this way? God, I don't know what you're doing in this moment. I don't know how you're going get, to get me to where I need to be or what you're even doing. Maybe you're left with some of those questions uh, this morning and even today. But I want to remind you that God always has a purpose for what you're going through. He has a purpose for the circumstances of life. And even if it doesn't feel like it's working out for your good, it is working out according to his plan and for his glory. And he's got you right where he needs you to be. So be obedient to exactly what it is he's putting in front of you and say yes to do and to go where he's telling you to go. And you can trust God's providence, right? We see hope is found when I trust that God is always at work. So we see God's power, we see his providence, and we're gonna pick up in verse six and seven here. We see God's presence culminated in, in the birth of his promised son, Jesus. We find hope in God's presence. Verse six says this, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. I really love the contrast in this passage here, right? How simple and intimate this image of God's love for us and how it started with this wide decree and it concludes with Mary giving birth to Jesus in a humble manger amidst all the events that were going on around them. You see, at first glance, we go into the scene of the story. And I think many of us in, in verses six and seven here, we, we read this and we say, oh, there was no room for them in the inn, right? We have songs about this and we've seen it in every Christmas play and every pageant uh, throughout time and history that no room in the inn. But if we look at that, I think we're missing what this is really trying to say. You know, I want you to know in that statement that there was no room is actually building off what we've seen so far in this text and what we already know about God and his character. You see, no room in the inn is not accidental or coincidental. This is intentional, and this was part of God's plan all along. It says that while they were there, the time had come. So God's plan was to show up, to come to earth, to redeem sinners, to provide hope at this specific time in this specific place. Galatians 4, 4 says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. So the greatest event in all of history happened just exactly how God wanted it to happen. It was God's plan all along. But the irony here is the long-awaited Messiah could have been born in a palace with all the riches of the world, with all of creation bowing down to worship him as he entered into the world. But yet God chose a small stage. He chose the backwoods little town of Bethlehem in a humble place with a poor couple, with a manger, a feeding trough for animals, which served as, as the place where Jesus laid and was born. Some swaddling cloths, right? That were torn strips of cloth that Mary wrapped Jesus in to swaddle him up in, in, in like a blanket so he could feel safe and secure. Because God doesn't do the things that, the way that man expects them to. I'm reminded of, of what it says in 1 Corinthians 1.27, that God uses the weak things of the world to confound the wise. There, there's almost like this upside, upside down way that God does things different than what we expect. You see, God chooses to work 
in the most unlikely people and unlikely places to display his power, his glory, and his presence. Matthew 1, 22 and 23 also talks about the birth of Jesus. And it says, so all this was done that it might be fulfilled that which was spoken to the Lord through the prophet, right? And this prophet is Isaiah. You know, we, we, we know this from Isaiah 7, 14. It says, behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. You see, this was the fulfillment to the promise given centuries before, even as far back as the first promise that we talked about in Genesis chapter three. The, pl- the plan that God had to be present among people in human form so that they could know him, so that they could understand his love, so that he could fulfill this promise. Uh, he was born as a baby, took on human flesh. And, and this is what we call the incarnation, right? In, in John, it's, John chapter one, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Friends, we have a God who is with us, who is among us, who understands us. He was fully God and fully man. And I think sometimes we lose track of that because it's hard to wrap our heads around the Godhead and how that all works. Uh, So as a human, Jesus experienced weariness, hunger, thirst, pain, suffering, sickness, and even death of those whom he loved. Jesus experienced the the fullness of temptation just like we do, but yet without sin. I love what the Apostle Paul says uh, about the posture in which Jesus came to be present with sinful humanity. Philippians 2, verse 5, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, the Apostle Paul also goes on right to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus took on this human experience of being born as a baby and coming to this world to be present among us. He entered into it for our sake. He emptied himself, it says in Philippians 2, right? He didn't become less of of God. He emptied himself of his glory willingly because he loved us. The creator, the sustainer of the earth, picture this, is born in a manger and all of majesty and the glory that were already his were exchanged at this scene of his birth to take on the sinfulness of humanity, to rescue, to keep his promise, to provide hope. So church, don't miss that this morning. God always keeps his promise. Hope was born. Hope has a name. His name is Jesus. It's the name above every name. And I love what Hebrews chapter one talks about, right? That he is alive, that he's defeated sin and death, and now he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And in that he rules and reigns and he's a present and active God. So all the things that are going on in the world, like I said in the beginning, don't miss 
what God is trying to teach us. But it can be debilitating to figure out what is God doing? Where is he at in the midst of all this? What is he expecting me to do? Well, it's simple. Trust and obey. You see, hope is found when I trust that God is always at work. It's about having the right view of God and a right view of myself. Then I understand his power, his providence, his presence are available to me. And it it motivates me to do something and live differently because of that. You see, I can, I can start to let him be, be con, in control of all the big things and stay focused and obedient to the things that are in front of me and continue to press into him and cultivate a deeper relationship with him every day. So I just want to give you some simple, practical ways of how you can, uh, how you can cultivate a deeper relationship with Jesus. Um, the first thing I would, I would suggest is to create some space, right? I, I said in the beginning, we, we all have so many things that distract us and we all just really need to declutter our lives to hear from God. Create some space. The second thing I would say is read his word and obey it. This is God's main way of of communicating and speaking to us. By the power of his Holy Spirit, he still reveals who he is and who we are through his word. The next thing, time and prayer, right? Turn our inner conversations that we have, get out of our own head and start turning those conversations into conversations with God. Because it's when we start doing that, we, we start to have a better understanding uh, of what God is doing and what he wants to do in and through us. And the last thing I would say is, is grow with others. We say it all the time here at the North Canton Chapel. It's about family. It's about community. And life is really all about sharing life with others who have a common burden and commitment uh, for spiritual growth and to being formed by Jesus. It's a place where you get around somebody else and you're honest with them. You're honest with yourself and you keep each other accountable to, to sin and, and, and taking steps of faith and uh, spending time in God's word. So I want to challenge you with those things. Cultivate a deeper relationship so that you can see and, and experience the presence of God in your life. You see, friends, we have a God who we can trust and we can trust his word and his work and we can rest in the promises that all that he's given to us in scripture, uh, that he is a good God and he's a God who keeps his promises. So let's not miss that today and in this season, especially. Let me pray and close our time together this morning. Father, we love you and we thank you so much in the simplicity of this story. You came from heaven to earth as a baby. You grew up and you walked around this earth and lived a perfect sinless life. You died the death that we all deserve so that we can know the hope that we have in you. Father, this part of the story, we understand that that you are all powerful. You're a God who provides and you're a, a very present God. So God, help us to know and experience your love by doing what you've asked us to do. Father, allow us, each and every one of us today, to search our hearts, to search your word, to ask ourselves, what what is it that you'd have me to do because of what Jesus has done? Father, help us to trust you in this season, to know that hope is only found in you. So Father, thank you so much for this time. 
May your word continue to ring true in our lives and find us faithful and obedient to all the things that you've called us to. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.